If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn them to Romans chapter 12. A couple of weeks ago, we began walking through this particular part of chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, this place where Paul seems to go in overdrive with this staccato repetition of exhortation after exhortation, just one after the other. 30 exhortations in just 13 verses. We made our way through three verses in the last couple of weeks, and we're going to go into overdrive this morning and cover two more. Um, So we've covered eight of those 30 exhortations. This morning we'll cover five more of them in verses 12 through 13. But before we read the passage, a quick reminder of where we are. Um, From a 30,000-foot level, We're in the second part of Paul's letter to the Romans, the doctrinal portion, the first 11 chapters, or excuse me, the the practical portion, the first 11 chapters were the doctrinal portion. And so just a word of caution, if you're new with us, if you're just kind of poking your head in this morning, we're glad that you're here, but the caution is to be very careful about seeking to find obedience to this without first going back to the first 11 chapters. Because what, what Paul is describing here is the kind of transformation that we're to be experiencing as followers of Christ in view of the mercies that he showed us in the first 11 chapters. So we're in that Uh, practical section here in the second half. From the 50,000 foot level, as I said, this particular 15,000 foot level, this particular passage, verses 9 through 21 of chapter 12, Paul is describing to us the kind of transformed life that we're to live as followers of Jesus, specifically with respect to how we relate to other people. And then as we come down to kind of the ground level here, verses 12 and 13 that we're going to look at this morning, is part of this first widening of this circle of people that he talks about in this part of chapter 12, to whom we are in relationship. We mentioned last time that the circle starts with verse 9, with just us, just us individually. And he exhorts us with some very personal exhortations. He said, let your love be genuine, abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. So so it was just us individually in that first circle. And then, as we saw last week, the circle began to widen in verses 10 through 13 to include how we're to be transformed and how we love one another within the church, within the body of Christ. And so we covered verses 10 and 11 last week. We'll cover verses 12 and 13 of that this morning. Next week, we'll see in verses 14 through 16 that Paul widens the circle once again to include those outside the church and how we're to be transformed in our love for those who are not in the body of Christ. And then finally, he widens it once again in verses 17 through 21 to include those who are evil, to include those who do violence to us or those whom we might call our enemies. So this morning, excuse me, We're still in that first part of the widening of this circle, um, verses 10 through 13. Last time we covered verses 10 and 11, the first part of that. This morning we'll cover the second half of those exhortations in verses 12 through 13. So follow along with me in your Bibles as we read verses, I'm going to read the context here, verses 9 through 21, and then we'll focus in on verses 12 and 13. Churches, this is the word of God. 
May God affect this transformation in us as his people. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty with do not be haughty but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Gracious God, what a privilege it is to declare together in song that it is well with our soul because of what you have done for us in considering us by sending your son Jesus to rescue us from ourselves. God, we thank you so much for that truth and that hope. May you meet with us now, Father, as we turn to your words in faith and ask that you and speak to us, not just to give us understanding, but to change us, to transform us, to conform us to the image of your Son so that you might be glorified through our very lives individually and corporately as a church. Change us, mold us to look more like him. We ask this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. So having just read through this whole passage, I want to remind us once again why Paul includes these, all these exhortations here in this letter. These exhortations are here as a description. He's describing the life of one who's being transformed by the Holy Spirit into the image of Christ. That's what he's describing here. He's describing that kind of transformation. These exhortations are not given to us as a means by which we make ourselves acceptable to God. That was not the purpose of the law in the Old Testament, and it's not the purpose of these exhortations here in the New Testament either. They're given to us as a means by which the Holy Spirit is going to make us practically holy. We're reminded of Paul's purpose statement in Romans chapter 15 where he says, In some places I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder so that the offering of the Gentiles, which is us, so that the offering of our lives would be acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, he said. And so the Holy Spirit uses passages like this to make us practically holy, to conform us to the image of Christ so that 
we collectively will be an offering that is acceptable to God, glorifying to God. And so when we, as we've said each week, when we turn to a passage of scripture like this, as we seek to unpack these five exhortations this morning, we do so very expectantly. This is not just a a list of things that we need to jot down and start trying to mark off in our life. Instead, as we study these passages, we do so expectantly, praying, hoping, pleading that the Holy Spirit even now would begin to affect these changes in our heart and life so that we would be a people who is glorifying to God, worships and praises him through our very lives. And so may God do that very thing in us as we focus on these exhortations, these five exhortations in verses 12 through 13. Now, one interesting grammatical difference between these exhortations and the eight that we've already seen in verses 9 through 11 is that all we have here are the participles. All of the verbs in verses 12 through 13 are participles. You might recall that in verses 9, 10, and 11, those verses opened up with a phrase that really read more like a command. In verse 9, it began with, let love be genuine. In verse 10, it was, love one another with brotherly affection. And then in verse 11 last week, it said, do not be slothful in zeal. And then each of those phrases were followed up by and modified by any number of participles. Well, in verses 12 through 13, all we have are the participles themselves. That's all that's there. There's no leading command here. And so literally, we could read this as rejoicing in hope, being patient in tribulation, being constant in prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, and seeking to show hospitality. Now, since these are all participles and not imperative verbs, we might, at first glance, tend to read them as if they are not commands. Paul literally here is just describing the life of a transformed believer in Jesus Christ. The the ESV translation even, if you have the ESV or maybe another translation, the ESV puts a subheading over this passage. It's not inspired, but it's there to help us kind of see what's being discussed. But the ESV includes a subheading over this whole passage that says, marks of the true Christian. Marks of the true Christian. And so as we we see that, uh, we, we see that these are things that are true of the person who is a follower of Christ. If we want to know what a true Christian looks like, these are some of the things that are characteristic of or marks of a true Christian. Now, perhaps this concerns you. Perhaps this worries you a bit. Because if these things are the marks of a true Christian, and we conclude that we don't see any of this in our own lives, then we might be led to to wonder, am I really a true Christian? Well, I can't solve that one for you. Maybe you are, maybe you're not. Perhaps you're not. It might mean that. It might mean that you're not a true Christian because a genuine believer in Jesus Christ over time will be transformed by the indwelling Spirit of God in them to begin to look like these things in some degree or another over a lifetime. 
Some of what Paul describes here is, is the stuff of the fruit of the tree that, that, Paul, that, that Jesus himself talks about in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. The fruit by which we know what kind of tree one is. If you have an apple tree, sooner or later, you would expect there to be apples on that tree. But if you have what you think is an apple tree, and there's never any sign of any apple whatsoever, even over a long period of time, and instead what begins to show up are oranges, then I would submit to you that you don't have an apple tree. Instead, you have an orange tree. Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit. So friend, if you don't see any of this in your life, it perhaps might mean that, yes, in fact, you're not a true Christian. And if that is what it means for you, if that describes you, then what you need is rescue. What, 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 you, what you need is forgiveness. What you need is reconciliation with God. And if that describes you this morning, then that is not found in trying to put your best foot forward and trying to follow these exhortations. If that describes you this morning, then please don't put all of your effort in trying to become fruitful in this sense. Instead, trust in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross as your only hope to be rescued from the punishment of sin that we all deserve. But if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope for salvation, and you still don't see a whole lot of this stuff in your life this morning, then it might just mean that you've not been transformed yet or transformed enough. Maybe you came to faith in Jesus Christ and you were never discipled. And only now you're hearing and listening and learning what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Or maybe, maybe you once did exhibit this kind of fruit, but your life today looks less, than it, less like this than it once did. Perhaps you've wandered from Jesus for a long time, and in so doing, your life no longer exhibits a likeness to Jesus, at least not to the degree that it once did. Regardless of the reason for that, friend, today is a great day to repent. Today is a great day to repent of not pursuing Jesus enough that these transformations begin to take root in your life. Repent. Tell the Lord that you're sorry. Tell the Lord that, that you want your life to measure up to the, to the kind of life that speaks well of him and speaks well of the gospel. And, and, and submit yourself to believe that he has done everything necessary for this to happen in your life. He has conquered death and sin, and he has conquered its hold over you as well. And so commit this morning, or recommit your life to this pursuit of holiness, this pursuit of Jesus, a pursuit that is achievable because Jesus conquered sin and death. He conquered and defeated the power of sin, and so he's made it possible for this transformation to happen in your life. And submit yourself to believe that he is the very goal and purpose of this pursuit, his worship, the worship of him the praise of him and glorifying of him as our great God and King. So what are the marks 
of a true believer that we're looking at in verses 12 through 13. There's five of them here. And the first is rejoicing in hope. To rejoice in hope. That Greek word for rejoice is kairo, and it comes from the, the Greek noun kara, which is most often translated as simply joy. So we're to find joy in hope. And that word hope means the expectation of something good in the future. The the expectation of something good in the future. And by the way, the way the Bible describes hope, it's not like, oh, I hope this is going to happen. Instead, it is a declaration of a confident assurance that, yes, in fact, it will happen. It's just that now in the here and now, we're waiting for it to unfold. It's not that we hope it will happen, but we know it will happen, and so our hope is set on that confident assurance. That's biblical hope. And so Paul wants his readers here to know that that those who are being transformed by the renewing of their mind, as he said, are growing in their hope for the future. They're growing and fixing their hope and their joy on the hope of heaven. They're growing in their hope of future glory, their hope of Jesus' return, and, and they're being reunited with them. And their joy is fixed to that confident assurance of the glorious future that awaits those who are followers of Jesus. So as we're transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ, our perspective begins to shift. Our perspective begins to shift from this world to that world. Our perspective begins to shift from the here and now to the there and then. We begin to have an eternal outlook. As we learned in Romans 12, in the first couple of verses that really are kind of the foundation for all that comes after that. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And we're not to be conformed to the pattern of the world. We're not to be conformed to the pattern of the world. And part of the pattern of this world is to fall into the mindset that this is all there is. And there's nothing after this. And there's no hope after this life. There's nothing more to hope for. What you see is what you get. Now, sometimes this mindset simply comes in the form of a denial of Christianity and all of its promises and its hope for the future and its hope for heaven. But oftentimes it also comes to believers in Christ in the form of distractions. In the form of distractions. These these distractions distract us from this glorious future that awaits us as followers of Jesus. But oftentimes these these distractions are, are either delights and pleasures in this world or they are trials and suffering in this world that we experience. The delights and pleasures that sometimes distract us from the hope of heaven, the future glory that awaits us in Christ, they can be good things that become God things, idols that we erect in our lives out of things like money or career or possessions or materialism or 
Things like sports or fitness or outward beauty or even things like family or relationships. Anything good that we elevate in importance or priority above the Lord. But we also know that often the delights and pleasures that can distract us from future glory and the hope of heaven, often those delights and pleasures are in fact our sin. Just like the fruit of the forbidden tree, Eve was distracted from the singular rule that God gave to Eve and Adam and was distracted by the delight and pleasure of the fruit that was offered to her. See, sin lures us away from our supreme delight found only in Christ alone. It lures us away from that supreme delight as it offers us a form of delight. But just as Edmund in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe soon discovered, Turkish delight seems supremely delightful, but in the end, it betrays. So does sin all the time, church. Sin always oversells its ability to provide delight and pleasure And it always undersells its devastating consequences. And one of sin's consequences is that it distracts us from our hope of heaven. See, if our enemy can capture our affections with something down here, then we'll be distracted from the hope of heaven. And and we will not find joy in that hope. Why? Because our appetite for delight and pleasure will be filled with Turkish delight. If the Spirit of God is showing you this morning that you have a lack of rejoicing and hope, then I want to encourage all of us to to allow the Holy Spirit to search our hearts and see if there's any unconfessed sin there that's distracting us, that's distracting us, that we've been holding on to as we've been settling for lesser joys, the longer you hold on to that, believer, the longer you will be unsatisfied. As C.S. Lewis wrote in another work, this famous quote, one of my favorites from him, he says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition, and you can insert any vice, any sin, any rebellion against God. We're fooling around with these things when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Infinite joy is offered to us, church. So let us set down, put aside the Turkish delight that we've been indulging in and rejoice in the hope of eternity with this Redeemer who has rescued us. So something else that can distract us from the hope of heaven beyond the desires and pleasures of this world, beyond sin itself, is suffering 
and trials. They can, they can distract us from the hope of heaven. And I think that's why Paul moves directly from rejoice in hope to be patient in tribulation, which is the second exhortation. Be patient in tribulation. You see, hope is fixed to the future. Hope is fixed to the future, and tribulations and trials are fixed to the present. And if tribulations and trials and suffering can, get, can, can capture our, the attention of our eyes in the here and now, it's going to be that much harder for us to see the joy that awaits us one day. When we're, when we're in the middle of, the, of a tunnel, we're, we're in the midst of the darkness of a tunnel, it's hard to see the light at the other end. Suffering, whether it's physical, emotional, relational, or whatever, suffering has a t- tendency to divert our eyes from God to ourselves. And instead of rejoicing in the hope of heaven, we're wallowing in sadness and self-pity and things like doubt and anger and bitterness and depression. But it's in these seasons of life, church, that we need that joy that comes from a confident assurance in a future that is already set and has been an already purchased and is already determined a future that is glorious and as we just sang is absent of pain absent of sickness absent of suffering and absent of sin itself the apostle peter in his first epistle is writing to a group of churches in the early roman empire who are experiencing great persecution at the hands of the Roman Empire. So they're experiencing persecution, they're experiencing tribulation, trials, suffering, all of this. And what does Peter write to them about? He writes to them about hope. Listen, listen, those of you who may find yourselves in the midst of those sorts of seasons of life right now, listen to 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? So that this of your faith, which is more precious than gold though perish, that perishes though it is tested by fire, so that that tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Friend, if you find yourself in the midst of suffering or tribulation or trial or whatever, let the word of God that has come to us through the apostle Peter in this passage be a balm to your soul and remind you, remind you of the hope of heaven. That's why Paul exhorts us here to be patient in tribulation. Why be patient? Why be patient with tribulation? Because tribulation and suffering and pain are part of the human experience in a fallen world. As Paul, uh, Peter later says in the same epistle, verse, chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, expect it. Suffering, trials, tribulation, pain, they are par for the course in the human condition in a fallen world. And so patience is required. Patience, because this world, this fallen world, will not last forever. And our God will usher in a new one where he will make all things new. And the clock Church, the clock is ticking on that eventuality. And so set your hope on that. Find joy in the certainty of that reality. Rejoice in that hope. And for now, for now, for now be patient. So rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. And then thirdly, he says, be constant in prayer. You know, I think this one follows naturally from the other two in verse 12, don't you? Because if, I, if I'm going to rejoice in hope, then I, I'm going to need to be patient in tribulation because tribulation is part and parcel to living in a fallen world. And if I'm going to do that, man, then I need to be constant in prayer. The word here that is translated constant means to continue, to endure, to persevere constantly. One Bible commentator says it is to have an urgency in our readiness to pray, an urgent readiness to pray. It's very similar to Paul's exhortation in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 when he tells us very bluntly, pray without ceasing. Pray without stopping praying. But here in Romans 12.12, the idea is to be so devoted in our prayer life that it's it's as if we have never gotten up from our knees. And we're always on ready alert to speak with the Father. It's our first instinct, not our last resort. Now remember what Paul is doing here as he's describing. He's describing the kind of life of one who is being transformed into the likeness of Jesus. And so just reflectively ask yourself, have you experienced that kind of transformation? What does the current condition of your prayer life Reveal about what you believe. Are you constant in prayer? Is there an urgent readiness in your prayer life? Now, some might say, 
why should I pray? I mean, after all, God already knows what I'm going to ask him, right? He already knows what I'm going to say. And it's not like I'm going to convince God of the need to give me something that he's already determined to give to me. So why should I ask him? Church, I, I, I think that there is an unnecessary and yet often present danger for those who unapologetically affirm the sovereignty of God. And that unnecessary and yet often present danger is to view prayer as pointless. We who affirm that God is in control of the universe and that everything that happens is according to his sovereign will, whether his will of decree or his will of permission, we seem to be susceptible to a weak prayer life. After all, why do we need to ask God for something that he's already going to do, he's already predetermined to do? But that kind of perspective only reveals a gross misunderstanding of what prayer is. When we pray, church, we're not informing God of something that he doesn't already know. We're not letting him know about a need of ours that he isn't already much more intimately aware of than even we are. We're not trying to wrestle blessings from him. We're not, to, we're not trying to convince him of the severity of our need so that he might give us whatever it is that we're asking for. Prayer is meeting with God and speaking with God and declaring our dependence on him for help. That's what prayer is. And when we lift our need for help to God, we are declaring our dependence on him. That we know that if help is to come, it is going to come by the hand of God or it will not come. And here's the, here's the beautiful, gracious thing about prayer, about God and about prayer. God has determined in his sovereign will that prayer be the channel through which his gracious help comes to his children. That's the, that's the vehicle, that's the means, that's the channel through which that help comes. Our prayer goes up, our desperate pleas go up, and his gracious help comes down. Don't try to understand it and complicate it any more than that. Don't let your conviction of God's sovereignty, which I share with you, don't let that cloud the biblical reality that when God, God's people pray, God moves. We don't change his mind. God is immutable. He never changes. But when God's people pray, God moves, God helps, and God strengthens. So let us be a people who are constant in prayer and convicted so much that this is true and that God is there, that we are always on ready alert, and that there is an urgent readiness to our prayer life. Now, we, before we move on to verse 13, I, I want to look again at the form of this 
paragraph so that we see something very important here. We talked a couple of weeks ago how about, about how verses 10 through 13 are about how we're to be transformed in how we love one another within the body of Christ. But the very form of this section shows us that while we're being transformed in our love for one another, we must also maintain a focus on being transformed in our own very own, very own life, our own personal transformation. Verse 10 is about loving others. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. That was outward, right? That was, that was very outward oriented. And then verse 11 turned inward. Remember? Verse 11 is about what's happening in our own lives, this personal transformation of not being slothful in zeal, but being fervent in our spirit and serving the Lord. That was about transformation going on in our own lives, in our own heart. Verse 12, as we just covered it, continued that personal transformation. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Constant in prayer. But now in verse 13, Paul returns again to the idea of loving one another within the body, where he says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. The point here is this, that if we're going to love one another in the body of Christ like we should, then we need to maintain a focus on being transformed in our own individual hearts and lives as well. That's part of what Paul meant, I believe, back in verse 9, which is kind of the umbrella over this section, when he says, let love be genuine. Let, let, let love be without hypocrisy, is what that word meant. If we're unloving on the inside, then our superficial attempts at loving one another on the outside eventually will be revealed for what they are, fake, unauthentic, and superficial. And unfortunately, instead of loving others in the church, we will end up hurting them. Now, the answer to that is not to stop loving others, but instead to surrender. As Paul said in Romans 12, 1 and 2, to surrender and offer up our lives daily, moment by moment, by moment as, a, as a sacrifice to be transformed by the Spirit of God. To be transformed so that we look more like Jesus on the inside, not just the outside, so that our inside matches our outside, so that we, were tr we will truly be without hypocrisy. So now we can look at verse 13. That was a precursor. It was free. Now Paul returns to the focus here of loving others in the body, in the church. Two final exhortations. First of all, contribute to the needs of the saints. The, the word here for contributing is the verb form of that word that we looked at in our community series for fellowship and community, koinonia. Here it's the verb koinoneo. And it carries the connotation of sharing something in common. We in the body of Christ, we share a common faith and we, we share in a common Lord and we have one Father and because of that we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. And so... What happens to one of us happens to all of us. And we weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice. And when one of us has a need, we all share in that need. We all have that need. And when one of us has 
a means of provision for that need, then we should share that provision with those who are in need, such that the need is met. Isn't that what we saw in that passage out of Acts chapter 2 that we often return to when we, when we want to get a concise picture of community within the early church in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Within that passage in verses 44 through 45, Dr. Luke said this, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, what do we do with that? Now, I don't think that this passage from Acts chapter 2 here is so prescriptive that we all need to go home and find a realtor and put our homes on the market and sell them and then bring the proceeds back here so that we can distribute them to those who are in need. The Acts 2 passage doesn't give us a command to go and do that. It simply describes to us what the early church was doing to meet the needs of the people around them. But what we can infer from this Acts 2 passage is that that was how that church sought to be faithful to the exhortation to contribute to the needs of the saints, which is the exhortation that we have here in Romans 12, 13. Now, if we're going to be faithful to this, to contribute to be people who are contributing to the needs of the saints, then a couple of things are required of us. A lot of things are required of us, but a couple in particular. One is that we've got to know one another well enough to know what those needs are. We've got to be close enough to one another to know one another so we can know what these needs are. Now, somebody might say, well, all somebody has to do is tell me what their needs are, and I'll seek to try to find a way to help them, right? I can't help you if I don't know what your needs are. And we've all heard that, right? Maybe we've heard it from our own lips. And that's all fine and good, but I ask you, is that how you would want someone to love you if you found yourself in that position? You know, just man up, humble yourself, and ask for help. No, we probably wouldn't want that. We'd probably want something, someone to be close enough to us to where they recognize that there's a need and they seek to meet that need. So we've got to get to know one another, get close enough to one another, and stay close enough to one another so we can know what these needs are. Now, parenthetically here, if you are the one who finds themselves with that need, I'm not giving you permission to just sit back and wait for someone to notice your need. Please don't do that. Please don't do that. Don't judge the capacity of the people around you to love because they don't notice your need. The reality is that, that we're all broken people and we're all, none of us are very good at this. And we need to grow in our ability to get close enough to one another to where we see these needs and can seek to meet them. So we all need to grow in this and become more proficient at noticing these needs. But this requires more of us than simply getting close enough to know one another so that we know these needs. It also requires us to be unselfish enough to let go of our stuff in order to help others. In order for us to do that, we need to have the mindset of that of a steward 
that we are simply a steward of the resources that God has given to us. So that we steward these resources in such a way that it benefits the body of Christ and not just ourselves. And by the way, he's not just talking here about money. He's talking about being unselfish with our possessions and our gifts, but also our time, our calendar. All these things are things that God has given to us, but they don't belong to us. We've been bought with a price. We don't even belong to ourselves. We don't own these things, church. The biblical mindset is that we are simply stewards. We're we're managers of God's resources. And so we ought to steward them and manage them in such a way that we invest them in kingdom priorities, not just self-oriented priorities. We're to contribute to the needs of the saints. And then finally, the final exhortation in this passage that we're looking at this morning is to seek to show hospitality. Seeking to show hospitality, Paul says. The New American Standard and the NIV, if you have that translation, translates this practicing hospitality. And I think this is really interesting. The word that the ESV translates as New American Standard and the NIV translate as practice is actually the same word that is most often in the New Testament translated as persecute. In fact, in the very next verse, verse 14, that we'll cover next week, if you had a, if you had a copy of the Greek New Testament in front of you, that very word is used, that very same word, and there it is translated persecute. And here it's translated seek to show hospitality, practice hospitality. It's a word that comes from two other Greek words, one that means to flee and one that means to serve or to minister. And so one can flee to you and minister to you bad things and persecute you, or one can flee to you and minister to you good things and show hospitality to you. And that's what Paul is saying that should be happening in the life of a believer who's being transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. We should be showing hospitality. Now that word hospitality, that's a pretty cool word in the Greek as well. It comes from a compound word that, that combines the words phylos, which means friend, and xenos, which means stranger. I love that. Our English word hospitality comes from a Greek word that literally means to make a stranger a friend. Isn't that cool? That's what we're to do when we show hospitality. We're making a stranger our friend. But again, the context here is this is something that we should be doing with one another in the body of Christ. Now, for some people in here, there might be strangers in here to you. And so, obey this in a very literal sense. But for many of us in here, there are no strangers in here. We know one another in our church. We know one another in the body of Christ. But perhaps we don't know one another as well as we should. Maybe, in a figurative sense, we are strangers to a certain degree. And so I need to open my house. I need to open my life. And I need to open my heart to others and invite them in so that they know me and so that I know them and we can love one another without hypocrisy. 
Now, if we're going to do this, this is going to expose some idols. It's going to expose the idol that our homes always need to be show house ready, perfectly tidy. It's going to expose the idol of appearing to have it all together. Guys, it's going to expose the idol of having that perfectly manicured lawn. You see, if everything isn't all put together, then we don't want anyone to know that. And so we're not going to invite anyone in to our mess. Am I the only one who struggles with this? Listen, part of hospitality, to be honest, is putting forth the effort It's considering others important enough to make an effort to be ready to host someone in your home or or, or in your life and, and on your schedule, in your calendar. But don't let the fact that your home isn't model home ready be an excuse to never have anyone over. And don't let the fact that your life isn't perfectly put together be an excuse to never let anyone in. Listen, none of us is perfect We're all broken people, and broken people love it when other broken people invite them into their lives to get to know them and make a stranger a friend. Rejoicing in hope, being patient in tribulation, being constant in prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, and seeking to show hospitality. May the Lord so transform us for his glory. When we think about that phrase, seeking to show hospitality, literally meaning fleeing to someone, to minister to them in such a way that we turn a stranger into a friend, it reminds us that because we don't live up to these expectations, because we don't live up to these exhortations, nor any exhortations in Scripture adequately. God has fled to us in the person of Jesus Christ to minister to us in such a way on the cross of Calvary that he might turn enemies into his own children. If you're in need of rescue this morning, if you stand outside the family of God, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope to be rescued from what we all deserve as broken sinners, then I beg of you this morning to be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.